I once heard Lyle Jones remark, I am married to the theatre, but the ballet is my mistress. He's a man who relishes any discipline as long as it can produce a good story with clarity, passion and skill. An accomplished actor and director, he is from a school where you served an apprenticeship, learning how to craft your work on the job, by watching senior actors and devouring any experience that came your way. His was a time when an Australian actor would be obliged to travel to England to carve a career and further opportunities. After a time in London in various roles, he was drawn back to Australia with a unique proposition, the opportunity to head an actor training course in Western Australia. For 12 years, Lyle Jones oversaw the acting faculty at the West Australian Academy of Performing Arts and the training of countless successful graduates. His students included Marcus Graham, Francis O'Connor, William McInnes, Robert Taylor and Hugh Jackman. At age 88, he continues to teach acting, a craft in which he says you can never stop learning. He is driven by his passion, an immense curiosity and a desire to make the actor the best they can be. Lyle has immense knowledge, an opinion on everything and many wonderful anecdotes. For those of you who know Lyle, you'll find this conversation so enlightening, great nostalgia and so reaffirming. If you're about to meet the man, sit back and enjoy. You're in for a treat. Here's my chat with Lyle Jones. I doubt how many... I mean, none of you could make a career in the theatre because there isn't a theatre to make a career in. And whereas when I started teaching, especially in Britain, you see, the prevailing attitude for experienced actors and everybody else was, be very nice to do a film because there's lots of money, but then we'll do the real work in the theatre. And I don't think it works that way anymore. And I hope it doesn't because there's no theatre here for them to really work in. No organised theatre for them to work in. Def- def- defined theatre, what do you mean by... Well, just a, acting a, a, on stage rather than... A, a breadth of opportunities, yes, of yes, style yes. and oh, of repertoire. Just work. Right. Just work. You can't make a, st- a, a career as a stage actor. You, well, I don't know that you can make much of a career as a film or the elect, what I like to call an electronic actor. But, but, uh, but there's no way... I mean... And we are going back to the Middle Ages, but when I was sort of striking out, we made conscious decisions about... Well, perhaps just think of history. There was no film industry in Australia anyway. anyway, But uh, a lot of my generation, all my colleagues or my friends, the, the stage was it. That was what we were interested in, as I say. It'd be nice if somebody offered you a film or television because there was money. And but, exposure, I suppose. It, well, yeah, yeah. so I, I don't know that I even thought of that so much. Um, but, uh, but yes, but, but whereas now I, the, the pipe dreams that the young people have, I think, is all to do with electronic media. And that really should be influencing very much what is going on in the classroom. Not that I think that they should be learning exclusively about film and television, but I don't know, a lot of the things that a lot of the... a lot of the processes and attitudes that I kind of 
try and instill in them a really theatre ball. And I guess we've gone a bit full circle also in that graduates now, they a lot of them don't hang around. They go to Los Angeles that's or right, to London that's right, that's right. To, to seek the work Well, I understand that Whopper is sending a contingent to LA this year. Like a showcase? A showcase. Oh, wow. I don't know why, because they won't have green cards. But And I don't know if it's true, but I've had it on fairly good authority. Well, it would seem a, a natural progression, I guess. I in that it would. That's another platform. I that, wish we'd done that. I wouldn't have minded going to LA. <laughs> <laughs> so you've never been to LA? Sorry? You've never been to LA? No, well, I have, yes. Um, I'm very... Uh, I'm bad enough on Australian history, but uh, a geography. But uh, America is even worse. But yeah, I've been to LA. I've been to Hollywood uh, when Rob Taylor was there. I remember a week or so over there with him. And I've been around there, yeah. What about your training as an actor? There wasn't what You didn't train? There wasn't one. So how did you learn? Uh, well, you are really going back... A, I'm, I'm more and more aware of it as the years go on. You are going back a long way. I mean, I am 88. And I started out seriously thinking about the theatre when I was 12. And there was no film industry... Then the stage was really quite severely divided between very professional work, which was provided by J.C. Williamson's theatres, and that was the that was they were the dominating firm. We called them the firm. And I guess that there were a lot of imports too. A lot of imports. There were a lot of imports. The the real paying work came mainly from J.C. Williamson's. They had a couple of theatres in every state. For instance, here it was the Comedy Theatre, which was the straight house. They did all the straight plays, the current Broadway and West End successes, and His Majesty's, or Her Majesty's, depending on whoever was on the throne. Um... And that was the musical house. It also housed ballet. And I think it was Williamson's did do a, first in my experience, after the war they brought an Italian opera company out. So those things went into the... Now there was a lot, there was a severe division then between them and absolutely total amateur theatre. In other words, not paying or not paying very much. And most actors got their work um, worked in radio. And there was a massive amount of work in radio. So uh, radio theatre, not just announcing, there were, there were radio plays. Radio plays. Oh, yeah, I mean... They were the serials of the time. They, well, they were. They, you know, you start listening at 7.30, 6.30 at night. If I remember rightly, Martin's Corner, Dad and Dave, and a series of 15, 13-minute uh, episodes of various things, thrillers and all sorts of things. And that's where, where the work came from. And, and our great hope was that the theatre, the theatre would develop. It had died in Australia, as I'm sure, in other smaller places, with the coming of the Depression plus the talkies. Theatre had 
So there were quite a lot of theatres around, but nothing was worth... And, and people went to the, went to the movies. Uh, and very few people went to the theatre. And there were, as I say, there'd be one, one play at the comedy. I can remember when I was, oh, I don't know, about 11 or 12, the comedy theatre was absolutely blocked for a year by a hugely successful production of a very ordinary American comedy called Kiss and Tell. And so there was no real major production. Now, occasionally something might come in from abroad, and more and more did come. The, the old Vic came immediately after the war. I saw Olivia in Richard III on the stage uh, here at the Princess Theatre. The other part, where a lot of actors who wanted to do theatre and were doing radio to eat, um, there were, the amateur theatre then very slowly began to develop a bit the top echelons so that the St Martin's Theatre, which was originally called the Little Theatre, uh, it was difficult to get a part non-paid part there because really good actors working, Rennie Mitchell and Brett Randall ran the Little Theatre, became the St Martins and they built the St Martins that is there now. The Little Theatre, the St Martins Theatre was originally tiny church hall up there. Um, but that, that began to develop so you began to get something which developed finally into like what you've got today, a kind of pro-am sort of attitude that, uh, and what has now become, what do you call it, uh, cooperatives and yes. things like that. Yeah. Uh, but there's still no really organised theatre of such in Australia. I mean, it has developed. Garnet Carroll, he got the Princess Theatre going again immediately after the war. I can't remember now... I think it was his old, the old Vic that reopened The Princess. Up till then it had been showing movies. And for a long time before that, in my time, for a long time, my childhood, it was dark. Uh, there was nothing there. But the, um, he brought the old Vic out and I think that was uh, what reopened the, the, the Princess Theatre and gave a new kind of perspective, dimension to theatre. For a lot of Australians, that six-year war, there'd be nothing except what Williamson's put on. And, and the, uh, the only thing that I'm hesitating about is he also brought into the Princess Theatre and from my point of view gave it a real legitimacy again. He brought the Ballet Rombert out from, uh, from England and they had a phenomenal season there. And I was at the first night of Giselle with Sally Gilmore in it, uh, which was terrific. And I've forgotten how many there were. Curtain calls went into the tens on, on the first night. And that, that, that kind of reinvigorated the theatre as a concept uh, and people... people thrown to that season. 
because I'm, I'm aware that ballet is another great uh, passion of yours. Great passion. Indeed, you've described it as your mistress sometimes. Yes, that's right. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. What do you love about ballet? What is it about the, the storytelling? There's a fact or... that you can't fake it. Yes. You can't fake it. You can do it or you can't. You can <laughs> fake far too much on the in what's laughingly known as a legitimate stage. Um, but, you know, it's the skill and really knowing what you're doing. It's a technical physicality, of course, but can they act? It's an efficiency, a technical efficiency. Um, How does ballet acting differ to... to... Well, it differs in a way. Obviously, there's no words. Like like film and and, and, and stage, I suppose. In a way, in style, to use your words, I suppose it... And it depends on the ballet anyway... But the essence of it all, as far as the the acting goes, is the honesty, the verisimilitude, and the efficiency, and knowing what sort of work you're in. I mean, ballet, in very broad terms, ballet acting has its own reality, it's, it's it's just that world is different, that word world without words, but you can still tell whether it's phony, whether it's shallow, or whether it 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 has a basic human depth to it. Are you thrilled more by watching a good ballet or a good play? Uh, it's it's very difficult. I, I plays bore me a lot now. The music means a lot. The music means a tremendous amount. And I have a feeling, I don't uh, ponder it too much, that that was a, a part of me that could have been usefully developed when I was younger, if anybody had cottoned on to it. Uh, because I've I've always got some sort of melody going on somewhere. And it's tremendous. Music is tremendously manipulating, also. Isn't yeah, it? well, that's right. Oh, and and, and it, well, it's like the text for the actor. The music tells you what you're supposed to be doing, and and more important, more important, what you're not supposed to be doing, what you're not supposed to be doing. Um, it, it 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 it. So when you, I I don't know who it was. That, might have been Stanislavski with um, with an opera or musical or something like that. Uh, he pointed out very early because he was like me or me like him, a very text based, and I am certainly highly influenced by and um, constrained or disciplined by the text. But that when you're working on a musical, it's the music that tells you, not the words so much. Uh, whereas in the play, it's the words that tell you exactly. But but the, the music gives tells you what you're supposed to be doing. When did you first uh, encounter Stanislavski? When I was far too young, and when we didn't know enough about him. It would have been around about... When did I start acting? When I was... About, about 15 or 16, 45, 46. So there was a very well-known Australian actor and he was quite influential 
and one of the few people that I ever knew in those days that really took acting seriously as a an art form. I tend to recoil from that word art, but 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 as an art form and a process and you know, no, have, have, having some sort of a philosophy behind it. And that was Peter O'Shaughnessy. I don't know if you... No, no, no. And, uh, well, he was very uh, influential here in Melbourne. We're talking about the war and the end of the war, when Australia is totally isolated. Nobody's coming here. Nobody's going to get in. Uh, and we're not going anywhere. That'll change after the end of the war, but not quickly. So you're not accessing the art that's being developed in the States and in London either? No, no. The, the two major sources of information, I guess for everybody else as well as me, were two magazines. Uh, how we knew what was going on in the West End and Broadway was by reading a magazine called Theatre World that came out every month and Theatre Arts from the US. And so we kind of knew, and they had, especially theatre arts, kind of semi-learned articles in them about theatre and acting and things like that. But Peter O'Shaughnessy had discovered Stanislavski, and so had everybody else. I think the books were published here till 1939 or 40. I think they weren't published anywhere before, much before. Well, the first book, 1938, and like everybody else, and it was very, very, well, you, I guess you've read Nectar Prepares, I don't know, but... Um, <laughs> of course. <laughs> uh, they are, uh, it was very geared, and it was a very unusual thing to talk about at the time, to the, uh, to the interior work of the actor, the, the, pros, pro, the spiritual, the, the, the process of What's going on inside to inform the external? Whereas I guess any teaching that went on, and there was no teaching going on here. Oh, there were, that's, that's not fair actually. There were one or two private teachers, uh, one or two who did very good work, like someone called Lorna Forbes, who had an influence I couldn't afford to go to her, but uh, on a lot of um, my generation. Anyway, um, I digress. We, Peter talked a lot to me about what was in the book and this internal and and the big argument or the, the big discussion in those days was how much do you really feel? You know, what is your what is our attitude to what we feel? So we all read Stanislavski and he was full of all this and we all liked that. As you know, I mean, it's a historical fact now. It buggered up a lot of actors because it, 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 somehow it generated an attitude that any concentration on externals, especially for their own sake, but was contraband, absolutely, you know, a sin. You didn't think about the externals. You thought about the internals and it would come out right. Well, so a lot of rubbish, really. <laughs> Which he, he himself dem demonstrated by writing a book some few years later that didn't get out here till about 1940, 
eight or 49 called Building a Character, which was totally devoted to the external expression <laughs> of the... Uh, but by that time, a lot of actors had been buggered up. Uh, in, uh, and that went on for a long time. And it influenced, don't get me started on this, it influenced greatly, um, for the worse in many respects, the American method. Whereas, you know, we all know the way that went, that the whole thing became navel-gazing and every play became about, you know, an American actor saying things like, I never see on the side, never say something like that on the stage, something that I wouldn't say in life. And all that was going on. Two, eventually, the American method, Mr Brando being responsible for it, in, in streetcar, the American method became the, and the thing here and everywhere because of Brando's success and the work that he had done vis-a-vis Stanislavski through everybody thought at the time, though he himself denied it, uh, Lee Strasberg, who really did have, uh, have a very jaundiced and, and, and very simplified idea of what the method was, or what Stanislavski's system was all about. Well, all that started, and that, that, that was all, what was preached all the time was, uh, you know, that you worked on yourself, not a bad idea up to a point, and, and you could, um, you know, if you didn't really, if you weren't totally... Uh, spontaneously feeling all these things, then it was phony. The American drama of the period kind of helped to propagate those ideas because it was suddenly very working class. They were very, um, trying to find a non-offensive term, Uh, certainly not the West End and, and, and the New York a sophisticates. The, the place was not about all those people, they were about wharfies and, and things like that. And so, you know, that was real. That was real. And a lot of the actors that, that were going to play those things came from those backgrounds, so it was real for them. But anything else was phony. I mean, you know, from the Queen down, uh, the way they behaved it was phony. Only what I fucking do is is, is real and earthy, and, and and that influenced actors. Well, trying to deal with Shakespeare, they're still floundering, of course. Uh, trying to deal with Shakespeare and things like that with those attitudes, and so one had to go back to Stanislavski and the two books and really sort it out. You asked me started this diatribe going. Um, how I'd been trained, uh, I hadn't. I learned on the job with a lot of those, the theatres. The two great the theatres that began to develop here that were not Williamson's were the, as I said earlier, the Little Theatre, uh, which became the St Martin's, and the National Theatre, which is still going, and I still do a bit of teaching there, um, which is uh, William St Kilda? Picard. It's just around the corner. It's always had that... Uh, that no, no, no. Its original home was at the, in, in East Melbourne, uh, near St Peter's, uh, St Peter's Church. Do you know St Peter's? Yep, yep. Well, the hall there was the National Theatre. Uh, that was its auditorium for years and years. 
and uh, I was there a few years ago for some other sort of a function altogether um, and sort of having coffee in the body of the hall. There were no seats there. Um, and the small stage was at the other end of the room. And I looked at it and I could not believe what we'd done on that stage. I mean, I remember you could not, once the curtain was up, you couldn't cross the stage. You couldn't get from one side of the stage to the other. There was no crossing. You had to go out the building <laughs> and around the other side. If you, if you went off stage right and you had to come on stage left, you had to get out, rain, hail or shine dash around the other side and uh, the, there was no... And I looked at that stage and I thought, we did Hamlet there. We did Cyrano de Bergerac there. Gertrude Johnson, who was the founder of it, and her great, her own field was opera. I saw Madame Butterfly there. On that stage? On that stage. Wow. I saw the Freischutz there and, in fact... I was in the fry shoots for a matinee when somebody couldn't make it for something else, um, a non-singing role, I can, <laughs> I can tell you. Jean Alexander, who was the head of ballet there, staged the four acts of Swan Lake on that stage, and my, rem- my memory of seeing it was that it was very respectable. Um, the National Ballet, prior to that, we don't want to digress too far, but the, um, going back to a royal visit, had staged the first full Swan Lake in Australia uh, in, in a uh, major production at the Princess Theatre uh, for the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh to be guests at. However, the King George VI died on their way out here, so they never got here. But we did get a full swan lake, a good swan, a full swan lake out of it. Were you working as a paid actor then? I was working radio, um, working... Some of the theatres began to pay a little bit of money if they wanted you that much. Like the National, like the, um, like the Little... Uh, it would be a fee per performance or probably per per week, and it wouldn't be much. Uh, Radio, that was fine. I finally got a job. What happened to me was that the Royal... No, they weren't the Royal Shakespeare Company. They were the Shakespeare Memorial Theatre Company. They became the Royal Shakespeare Company. They came out here with Diana Wynyard and Anthony Crowell in Much Ado About Nothing and a Macbeth. And I joined the company. Uh, they were they brought the entire company out except for a few tiny bits and they wanted understudies for the for for the I enjoyed that. We toured Australia, that was terrific. I learned terrific about there. Um, by watching and absorbing by watching osmosis. and absorbing and their attitudes yes. their attitudes the professional attitude you know you're never late you're, 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 um, you 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 don't miss interest your warm up yeah, well no the warm up was still pretty uh, people didn't warm up no? pretty way out that I mean <laughs> a few other people a few people might do a, a kind of uh, 
subversive voice exercises in the in the dressing room, but oh no, that all that was all considered very amateur. Uh-huh. Oh, you couldn't act if you had to warm up. <laughs> <laughs> you either had it or yeah, you didn't. Yeah, that's right. That right. the old the older actors, you know, uh, no, 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 no. You know, you, you just got up and did it, but. Um, but the, uh, then, then I went back to Sydney. I I left Melbourne for the first time. How I know I had my nineteenth birthday when on in the company, and we went. We finished in Brisbane, I suppose. And I decided to go back to Sydney. So were you born in Sydney? No, no, I was born, born in, in Melbourne. I'd never left Melbourne until we. I went off on this tour, and that was quite a big thing. I mean, you know, going to Sydney was um, you know, like going to Moscow now, you know. So, but people didn't just pop down there every, you know, up and down like you have. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so I went back to Sydney because while we were there, I'd made some friends and I liked the scene there. And Doris Fitton at the Independent mm-hmm. Theatre, I got... Uh, to know her and so I went back and worked in Sydney for years doing the same sort of thing and then I came back here and I got a job at the Melbourne hospital to earn some money I went back to living with my parents and I had to kind of I'd been away for three or four years and that made a big difference in those days things had changed a lot, you know. I wasn't known anymore uh, like I was before I left. Being a being a young industry too, I, I guess there wasn't the prevalence of casting directors. And, oh, no. No, well, you, you when got I came back through. from, we are now talking talking about thirty years later when I finally came back from England. I found all these agents here. I thought they're raving mad. What have they got agents for? You know. I mean, people rang you up. You rang people and up. And you, you handled your own business. Yes, mm. that's right. Mm-hmm. And suddenly all the actors paying 10%. I thought they were... You know, when I went to England, <laughs> I've, I've, I thought the whole thing was a con job. The, 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 uh, the agent thing. I come back and the place is full of them. Uh, and for the worse. Now, before we go to England, can we go back to that yeah, tw- yeah. that twelve-year-old boy? What, yeah. what do you think that, was it that, that, that caught his imagination to to want to sort well, of have a life on the stage? Funny you should say that. I don't know. I mean, was really. it an artistic household? No, no, uh, uh, no, no. In 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 the realist terms, no. My mother could sing. Um, I suppose, you know, what we would tend to listen to on the radio if it wasn't First Light Fraser or something like that, uh, music would be semi-classical, semi-classical. I mean, I don't think it would go as far as Bach and uh, Mozart string quartets, but uh, if we were listening, it, it wouldn't be swing, which was there. <laughs> it would be semi-classical music, uh, a kind of music that's totally disappeared now. Uh, operetta. And, uh, and what was called musical comedy. Things like The Maid of the Mountains um, and, and the, the, that's the sort of... So it was that sort of household. Um, Did you have siblings? No. 
No, no. no well, so there was no backyard. One that died before here. me. Right. Uh, I mean, I don't think he had hardly had any time to take, take any breath anyway. Um, but no, I didn't. My mother was crippled with rheumatoid arthritis. Right. And uh, that made a huge difference in those days. The thing that most influenced me, I can remember my parents taking me to see a movie called The Awful Truth with Cary Grant and... Who was it called? Irene Dunn. Uh, which I've seen again since. And my father, he was a motor mechanic, but in a time when there were very few of them, and he and his brothers were absolutely whiz-kings at it. They knew the inside of a car or everything, and they could take it, and did, would take it to pieces on a Sunday morning and have it all back again, uh, fixed up by Sunday night. And so we had our own car, which was very unusual, uh, especially for our kind of economic status to, to have a car. Nobody had a car on our street except us. And we were driving home from the movie and then the last scene in it had been at night and I was yapping away. I couldn't have been much more about it. I've dated the film, so I guess I was about seven or eight or something. I was trying to find out about films from mum and dad are in the front seat on the back and asking them how they do it. How they, they were, and my mother was explaining more or less, you know, what everybody, general idea of filming was. And I said, well, the, so they, they were at night at the, at the end. So, oh, yes, mum said they... The actors, uh, oh, yes, they were terrible hours. She said, they, they can be working in the daytime. They're working 9 or 10 o'clock at night, which is rubbish, by the way, but uh, nevertheless, uh, um, 9 and 10 o'clock at night, they're, they're still... <laughs> and I can particularly remember that my mental process was, as I had to be in bed at 8 o'clock most nights, I don't know that I'd mind that working at 10 o'clock at night. Well, I guess that was the first thing that kind of put in my mind that it might be a bad thing to do uh, eventually. I, but I had no other kind of... Nothing else was developing very much. Mind you, I'm only in the second grade at school. I was just full of anecdotes as what about your parents? How did they feel about their only child wanting to be an actor? I don't think they believed it would happen for a minute. Nobody became an actor. <laughs> no. Did they try and talk you out of it? No, no. Right. No, no. I mean, they, I think they were gobsmacked. But move on to 1942, I think it was. Yes, just, uh, just before I'm going to um, high school. And hot summer... War's still on. My father's in the army, but he's not been sent away anywhere. And I think now, uh, I mean, I'm just ruminating over the years about things, that that was because of my mother's condition. And he could probably have got a an exemption, what do they call it? Dispensation. Yeah, from going because of her. He, he could probably have not been called up because my mother needed constant attention. Dad was, um, Dad and his brothers were so skilled that they wanted him in the army. 
so they got him, but he was never... And Dad lived home most of the time. Very rarely was he away. He was in the army, but he came home every night, so some deal must have been done. I mean, by the time I got interested to find out what it was, it's too late to ask. Uh, but we, But this particular Christmas... He did have to go to a camp somewhere. So my mother and I went to my paternal grandmother's for Christmas and it was absolutely fiercely hot. And my grandmother, her youngest son, lived with her, but he had his kept woman, which I knew nothing about at the time, uh, lived in Mordialic and he would was spend a lot of time down there. So... Um, they had arranged, my grandmother had arranged with her, one of her clubs or something, tickets for a performance at His Majesty's Theatre, Big Williamson's Bright, Gladys Moncrief in the Maid of the Mountains. And they were going, it was in January sometimes, and on this terribly hot day they were going. My uncle was going with her. He rang up from Baldy Alec and said, it's too hot, I'm not coming up, I'm staying down here. You can take Lyle, take, take Lyle on my ticket. So I went to see The Maid of the Mountains and that was the beginning of the end. <laughs> you were hooked. First time in a theatre and absolutely transfixed. You'd found the temple you wanted uh, to pray at. <laughs> absolutely transfixed by it. And never thought about anything else again, ever. Ever. Excellent. So I... And, and, and somehow... Somehow that coalesced. I mean, I hadn't thought, I'm sure I hadn't thought of being an actor as such, because there weren't any. I mean, you know, I, I, I just become, became totally stage-struck. And I thought about I'm obsessed, absolutely obsessed about it. And went to the National Theatre at Eastern Hill. They were doing Macbeth. And... Cut a long story short, they were very pro-am. I mean, some really good people working there, and um, they were. But in, any money, any any deals were done very privately, no, and nobody talked about them. You know that you were getting paid or you weren't getting paid or anything like that. Nobody talked. It was de rigueur. You know. And then Louis Fiander. You remember him? Indeed, yes. He was, uh, he's younger than me. He was there as a very young guy and he was in their office, working in their office, doing a bit of publicity. And he was acting. He played Malcolm in the Meccas. And um, then he decided to go off somewhere and they offered me a full-time job there. So I went there. Theoretically, to sort of handle publicity. Oh, I don't think I was ever very good at that. I'd ring up the Herald every now and again and tell them something. And, uh, but I did a lot of acting. I did a lot of acting. I stayed there two or three years, and from there I went to England. Everybody went to England. Y yes, so, so what catapulted you, that everyone around you was going? Oh, you yes, thought yes. you had to go oh, there the, to If you're going to have a career, success. that's right. where you went. Yes. There's no two ways about it. If you were going to have a career... That's where you went. Whether that was the stage or Ealing Studios in film or something. Yes, yeah. yeah. I, nobody ever talked. I mean, it, it, 
it was almost daggy to talk about going into films. Right. Uh, in the sense that, you know, chance would be a fine thing, you know. There was only Hollywood, really, and a few films being made in Britain. And nobody... But the serious people <laughs> went into theatre. What, what was it like leaving your parents behind, being the only child? Was there a sense well, of I'd responsibility? Well, I'd done it already. Going to Sydney? Uh, I'd, yes. Yeah. I'd done it already. I knew leaving my mother behind was difficult because she was became worse and worse crippled. But I do I do know that I consciously thought, and I knew I knew that it would um, that she'd hate it. I knew that she'd hate it. But I did really have to sit down and think. You're going to have to make up your mind. If you don't go, you always think you should have gone. To, you know, if, if, but because in the long run, I was probably wrong about this, but nothing was going to happen in Australia. Nobody made a career in Australia. Nobody made that sort of career. They had, they to, went overseas to, they had to go overseas. Peter Finch. That, all those people, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he was one of the, you, you know, the, but you see Olivier and Vivian Lee helped him a lot when they got over here. They oh, saw him. They met there, right? Uh, and Olivia said to uh, Fiji that if he ever came over, uh, he'd come and see him. I think Vivian Lee probably said the same thing too. But <laughs> <laughs> For different reasons. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so what sort of work did you do in, in London? I got a job almost the minute I got off the, off, off the plane. Uh, and that was... <laughs> this is quite funny. I mean, I'd done, I had done some, not training so much, but as I got money, and you know, there were a number of private teachers around the place. By this time, we're now talking about 58. There had been an attempt to set up a drama course, full-time drama course at the Conservatorium here in Melbourne. And it had been run by a woman called Eileen O'Keefe. And Eileen O'Keefe had been trained and had been mentored by Gwyneth Urban, who was the founder of the Central School of Speech and Drama. And so I had been to Eileen O'Keefe um, while I was at the National, and when I was getting some money, and I'd done some private voice work with her uh, and speech work, and she introduced me to a lot of the classical stuff. And I'd go once a week and I'd do a session with her. I'd been given an in, a, a, a letter of introduction to a very famous agent called Miriam Warner. I've forgotten what the agency was called. Well, she died <laughs> while I was on the way over. But I went to the agency and her who I see, a guy we called Smithy, um, he'd taken it over and he took me on because he got a request for an Australian. I can remember sitting in his office and he rang up this and said, uh, do you want an Australian for this? Uh, I didn't know what it was. And I didn't, he said, I've got one hot off the boat. What it was was to dub a film that had been made by Shell, so it was some sort of commercial film. 
And what the scene in the film was, tanker driver on a farm, he's on the veranda of the house, this is all I remember of it, and um, and and the they t- they're talking about, it was only about nine or ten lines, they're talking about something or other, and they made the film already, and they didn't like the guy who was doing the because they didn't think his voice was robust enough. He was a huge sort of giant man, and there was a little me in there, but they thought his voice was kind of weak and so forth. But they wanted an Australian accent. I'd spend my life avoiding that kind <laughs> of Australian accent. I didn't know. I thought I haven't got a punch. I didn't know how to do any of this. I, you know, I didn't come over here to do this. But I did it anyway and got paid for it. And there was an Australian um, girl there too. They didn't like the woman in the film either. It had been made in Australia, but they didn't like their voices. So they had us. So that was the first job I had. So they went I had a job enough. pretty well immediately. Tell me about Summer of the 17th Doll. Ah, well, <laughs> I have been known to say that I saw the first week here in Melbourne with an actress, stage manager, director who is long dead here called Wynne Austin. I can remember sitting at the old Union Theatre and I saw it and I said to Wynne, I don't know that I should propagate this story. Rose written a wonderful part and he's fucking it up himself. <laughs> oh, he was playing Barney, of course. He was playing Barney, yeah. yes. And, and he was here. Uh, but it had just been released uh, for repertory production in England when I arrived. So I did a couple of productions of that, uh, advising on it as well as everything else. I played Barney around and about. And, uh, Were there I other Australians in the cast? Uh, or? Uh, the first time, um, I've often tried to remember his name, Fred someone or other. got a photo of it somewhere. He was an Australian actor with a broad Australian accent, actually. Um, big fella. Um, they got him, I was at Chesterfield, and they were doing it in their repertoire. And so it was obvious I was going to play Barney. And they brought Fred up, and he was Australian. But he was... Um, I never heard of him again. He was OK in that, but I can't... I, I can remember thinking at the time, not unkindly, I don't know how you're going to make a, a career here, because that was all he could do. Do you know the best olive I ever saw? even including, I think, my dear June Jago, was an actress, an English actress, who came out here and finally died here, called Irene Innescourt. Oh, wow. And she, she did a lot of the MTC, didn't she? she that, that's right. Mm. But she was English, and she was the olive in the first one I did, I think. And she was stunning. Uh, I mean, she was good at accents, and she picked up my Australian, my my version of Australian very quickly. Um, she understood the play. We talked about the play. She and I got on very well together, and um, she we were very close for years. And um, but she was marvellous. I can remember the first night. I I I, I was absolutely thunderstruck 
at the end of the play with the breaking of the doll on the then with with um Rue and she was convulsed with tears and and shock and uh, and I can uh, I was standing at the back of the stage watching their scene and she does all this no 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 and uh, when he asked her to marry and attacked him and she walked past me oh, she had to go to the back of the stage to reach the door that it was the, the back of the session and she walked past me and I couldn't speak I thought because I, I, I had the next line a poor old Rube was called him, shattered down the, the front of the stage and I, I took him off the stage and I thought I can't speak I, I'll burst into tears if I speak I've never been affected by anybody like that on stage before. She was marvellous in it. I had to really steal my... She'd, I mean, we'd done the dress rehearsals and we'd done all that and we'd done it, but she hadn't done any of that. <laughs> and on the, it, it just collapsed me for about ten seconds. There was this awful pause while I tried to get an, enough breath and, uh, uh, you know, pull myself together. Because that was Lyle reacting rather well, that than That was Barney. me. That yes. was me reacting. Yeah, yeah my, I mean, my lines were absolutely... You, you, Barney is certainly, um, you, you know, polaxed by the whole thing. But he's the one that takes command. Mm. Um, and I, I couldn't speak a word. Mm. It's, uh, it, I've never forgotten that. Yeah. Um, that was the best, um, she was the best Oliver I ever saw. So th there's the doll, but considering all your body of work, yes. do you think you're a good actor? I think, I don't think now that I'm as good as I thought I was. In other ways, I think I was more proficient than I imagined I was. I mean, yeah, I do. I, I was good at, I mean, uh, I was never at a loss on the stage. Or I don't think I was ever um, sort of gauche. I knew I knew what the responsibility was, and uh, I took it very seriously. Not just from the point of view of making my own career, but the responsibility to the play, and to and yeah, I th I think I I think in that sense I was, and I was very very devoted to the text and getting the play right. Tell me about the West Australian Academy of Performing Arts and your move into the teaching of acting. Well, yeah, I, well, I moved into the teaching of acting because I was in England. I was at the, they called themselves the New Shakespeare Company at Open Air Theatre Regents Park, uh, which is pretty classy at the time. Plays in the open air in again, what is laughingly called English summer, and three matinees a week because of the weather, you're outside, and, but six performances, and they do one or two plays a year, and people, and it's an open auditorium, uh, which means if it rains, you get rained up. Uh, and I went there to play As You Like It, and then they asked me back the next year to play did we do As You Like It again? I think we might have done. And Cyrano de Bergerac. 
I reckon I'm the only English-speaking actor that's been in two separate productions of Cyrano de Bergerac. One at the National Theatre in Melbourne and the other one at the Open Air Theatre of Regis Park. And they also offered me the job of um, associate director. Anyway, there were two children, there were all three children, little boys in it. Oh, can you take the kids and uh, rehearse them through their lines? And I worked with the boys and I, I coached them through what I thought he wanted. And in the fullness of time, they um, you know, they appeared in it. Uh, during the rehearsals, myself and generally another member of the company would take the boys for a walk in the park or something. You know. It was pretty boring sitting around. They only had about five or six minutes on the stage. You know. And so, yeah, so we got through the season, we did the season and... They enjoyed it all. I was sitting at home doing nothing very much at the time. Um, and the phone rang one day. And it's a guy called Brian Cook from the Arts Educational Schools. And that had a children's theatre school attached to it. Now, this is a very special concept only to England. It's called a stage school. And those children are registered and they, uh, they have a course and they, can, they do a half day of academic work and a half day of their vocational work. They have dancers there too, young girl dancers. And it's the guy who's running the drama there that runs that part of the school. Um, the arts educational school was given over mainly to ballet and it fed the festival ballet in those days. And it was originally called the Cone Rittman School, our two ladies who had since died. So, so the, these, these young actors were available for professional work? Yes, and it's all legally tied up, and they have, you know, there's someone in the school that arranges the contracts and sees that the hours are kept. So if you needed a flounce... That's right. Yes. That, yeah. That's yeah. right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Or film and television. Right. They were doing the film and television. And he rings up and says, "This Brian Cook and says, oh, you 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 worked with the the boys. They named the boys on the in Serrano de Bergerac. And he'd probably seen him there at a performance or something." And I said, "Yeah, that's right." And he said, "Well, we wondered if you'd like to come and do some teaching uh, with the." drama stream of the school, you see. Uh, and he was just beginning a drama stream for adults, whereas at that time, the adult school, as it were, is only dancers. Uh, but he didn't mention that. He said, would you come and do some work with them? And I think he said... It pays 30 shillings an hour. It was a fortune. 30 shillings an hour. It was a fortune. An hour. 30 shillings. And uh, I said, oh, yes. No, I had no idea what I was going to do. I know. Well, I went along and I sorted out. So I don't know what I did with them. But I mean, I tried to do something. Probably not. But, but they enjoyed it. Uh, and uh, so I, I kept going back there. And he asked me to do more and more work. And then he asked me, he just got the first, maybe the second year going. 
of the adult school, what we would call the adult school going, and he said that I want to teach on that. I was more interested in that because, you know, all the acting that was teaching that was going on was very much given over to speech and drama and, and you know, external tricks and things like that. So I went and I did some work there while I was waiting for other work to come. Well, I started to make a lot of, quite a lot of money there and to do other work very often out of London, I had to leave it. And I was quite enjoying being in London with money. And, you know, the West End wasn't beckoning me. But uh, I, and I just drifted. I got more and more interested in the teaching. I got, finally, years later, I took a degree in education, which was worthless, I thought. But, uh, but at London University. Uh, but when I got to that stage, when I got deflected that much, I thought, well, if I'm going to be a high flyer, I've got to have a degree. I'd got a, a quite good reputation as a teacher around and about the tracks. But to be put in charge of a school or something like that, they still looked for degree. I mean, the degree has been the rule of acting teaching throughout the Southern Hemisphere and probably some of the Western. So, so did you move back to Australia for Whopper, or were you back in Australia and uh, Whopper beckoned? I, Nigel Rideout, do you remember him? Indeed. He was, um, he'd come out here with um, uh, Trinity College to do some, some of that speech and drama uh, examining that they do, and it was Jeff Gibbs in Perth that cottoned onto him and he was just starting up the academy then, which was really, again, supposed to be mainly concentrating on music. It had been set up by Richard Court's father, Sir Charles Court. Is that him? Yes, indeed, yeah. Uh, so a, it was a, going to be a conservatorium. As or? a sort of conservatorium. Oh, right. But there was one at the university already. And Jeff was doing the drama, and Nigel, he got Nigel in to do some auditions... Nigel came back to London. Now, remember the seasons of the reverse and the long vacation in uh, England is the June, July. And uh, he said, why don't you come out? Because I was working at arts education. I was now running arts education schools. How did you meet Nigel? So you, you knew Nigel in London? I, I'd known N Nigel. I think I'd had him down to arts ed a couple of times. I don't know how I first met him. But so he, and we'd become friends as well as uh, colleagues. So he said, he arranged for me to come over to Perth and do, in the long, our long back, to do a production of The Duchess of Malfi. Went back to England. They were then taking a third year in at Whopper, and that meant they were going to need extra staff. And Jeff Gibbs took a tour around, came to the to Arts Ed, which I was running, and then he offered me a position as head of acting at the academy. And the money he offered me for that was more than I was being paid in uh, for running Arts Ed. 
a little bit more, Margaret Thatcher had just taken over and money was being cut back from arts, being cut back radically from education, radically from arts. And also, I had been there for 10 years at Arts Ed. And I have a theory, I still have it, that you move on after 10 years in a job like that. It is dangerous for both the institution and yourself to stay. And I looked around, I just got this idea of sort of niggling a bit in the back of my head. And both Central School, the two best schools, in, and, um, and I think Bristol Old Vic and, um, and RADA all suddenly changed their, he their heads of department, their heads of the school. They all changed their heads of the school. And I thought, well, that's them done for at least five or six years, you know. And I'm thinking of getting... So when Jeff suggested that coming over, and I thought, and as I said, Margaret Thatcher, and I'd liked Perth. I can always remember my first couple of days there thinking, the light is so marvellous here, I don't know why the whole film industry isn't in Perth. And I still don't. Um, but I decided to take it on. I thought, well, I can go. Uh, I drove a hard bargain. I had to take everything, me, all my books, everything back there. And uh, I worked it out. I was also over 50 and I was thinking of retiring and I thought, I don't know, Perth might be quite a good place to retire in. Britain didn't look as if it was going to be much fun uh, to retire, you know, not be earning. Um, so I went and, and I arranged that if it didn't work out, I sorted it out. They, they had to, the contract was a certain time. I thought, if I have to get back to England, I can, I'll be, you know, I'll be able to financially afford that. Um, but then that, that developed hugely. I did enjoy it there. I enjoyed it because I really was left to my... I mean, you know, what I said to go... And by that time, I'd worked a few things out. Yeah, you were well, developing the, the course. Yeah, that, oh, yes, yes. Whopper operated Yeah, by. yeah, yeah. Can anyone be taught to act? I divide the, 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 the thing into two parts now. There's acting, um, a, a, a large part of which is made up of uh, the skills of performance. Those can be taught. I don't know that you can... No, it's quite obvious, I think, that you can't... You might be able to introduce someone to acting by certain processes, but no, unless they've all... Look, the profession's so overcrowded, there are so many really good actors that aren't working and things like that, that I see no point in trying to help anyone to act who can't act, or at least hasn't got the the imagination, the the kind of verve, the pushing, um, open exp the, 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 the impulse for open expression. Uh, you can teach them to refine all that uh, in such a way as, as it is potent, incisive and immediate to the watcher. What were the essentials that you um, put into the course? That, that well, the first thing have? that I start off with, and I'm I'm still absolutely, totally obsessed with, is the text. Uh, 
it's not always the wisest thing when you think of some of the film scripts and uh, and uh, television scripts that you you see. Maybe the text isn't as beautiful as all that, but it's, it is knowing what is happening in terms of action in the text. What you see, the of course, this is considered a no-no in many areas too. What you consider from a straightforward, intelligent reading of the play and the part is going on here in terms of behaviour, externals in I don't mean detailed, but, but it, you know, what is happening here? You should be able to justify this totally from the text, all sorts of things, uh, you know, the way it's been plotted, the language and all those things. But what is required here? That is the first thing. What, how you see it, the scene, as it were, watching it from a second or third reading, having read it, two or three times, and then that is what you're going to act. Now you start acting. How do I do it? How do I make that real? How do I make that real? What do I have to do? And then you go into all those, the next questions, which are all those Stanislavski questions. Who am I? What am I doing? Why am I doing this? Not how am I doing it, how it's going to, what it's going to look like, or anything else. Not yet. No, what am I doing? So, you know, what am I doing at the beginning of Hamlet as that first um, guard that comes on? Trying to get back to, because you never stop talking about it, trying to get back to the, you know, the barracks because it's freezing cold. So, and, and that's what you do. Also that the actor, with the help of the director, these are what Stanislavski called the given circumstances. Uh, what, 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 what do I want? What, 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 but what do they, I think you'll never stop thinking, what do they need out there? The people that have seen it for the first time, only time, have to get it now or not at all. And I think this is what is going on here. How do I make that clear in those terms? I get sick to death of all the the, the, the pseudo-Freudian psychology that goes on in analysing characters. It's the character's surface behaviour that you're concerned with. I don't care whether he was in love with his rocking horse at the age of six uh, and make, makes him behave this way, unless that's what the play is about. I'm not interested. If that helps you, by all means, go off, fantasise about it, do all that. But what I want to see is what this behaviour is. You oversaw the tuition of, of many graduates who have gone on to considerable success around the world. Yeah. Are you able to sit there in a theatre or a cinema and watch them and enjoy their work? Or is there elements of their performance which cries out to you that you oh, want to correct. There's elements perhaps. of everybody's performance <laughs> <laughs> cries out or did. Uh, uh, I'll look, um, well, take the kind of the supreme example, I suppose, from Whopper, uh, Hugh Jackman. It's always, I don't know that I helped him very much, really. I mean, he had a lot going for him when he came. Uh, but he, uh, we, we certainly taught him how to hone it, shape it, 
um, and and a certain approach. The thing about Hugh Jackman that I do that always gives me pressure in in watching him, or has generally given me pressure in watching, is that the ideal performance for me is one that seems to just be happening now for the first time, absolutely. Uh, which means that you are, all the work you've done in rehearsal and reading and analysing and talking and everything else is processed into certain behaviour at certain moments for certain reasons. The trick of acting well is to process it every time, not imitate yesterday's performance. That You'll get away with an awful lot that way and... You know, sometimes when in doubt, what else can you do? But it's a, to find a process that helps you to process the moment at every performance. When I see Hugh really at his best, I just feel that he's doing it now, not yesterday, not yesterday's performance, not the dress rehearsal. It's now, here and now, at this moment. I like watching that, if it's as, happening. Because as actors, I mean, that constant repetition, especially in the theatre... That's the hardest. We cannot afford to wear away the truth. That's right, yeah. that's right. And it's easy to do without even trying. It's easy to do. That's why all the basic questions, like always keeping in mind, it's all right you can sit there and tell me what you want, what your objective is, and it's said. I don't believe it. I believe you know it's supposed to be there. I believe you have no great objection to doing it if the mood strikes you. But the part of your your process is to get yourself organised so that you can hone in and lock into that every moment and that you've got it in your mind. It's a lot to do with learning words because, and looking at Shakespeare, of course, which none of them are ever going to do in this country, uh, but look, if you, if you don't think the thought, if you don't actually really think the thought with the lines, it'll start to slip away. It'll start to be smooth and external and flattened out. It's, uh, the thought has got to be there all the time. So you didn't retire in Perth, you moved back to Melbourne. What, well, I was what going brought to you back to the East Coast? Perth. I don't know. In the 10 years I was there, I thought I've made a mistake. I don't want to stay here when I, when I retire. Mainly because I don't drive. I can't drive. I never have driven. And, uh, you know, I don't know whether Perth's changed in that respect. You know, the buses came every Monday, Thursday. And that, so I, and I didn't want to. And at that time, Perth was no place to get terribly interested in anything if you weren't working. I mean, I think it's developed a lot. It needs to. It's over 20 years since I retired. So um, so I I decided to come back to Melbourne. I was quite happy to retire in a way. I was pretty fagged out at the end of the time in, in, uh, in Perth. And, you know, just to sit with my books and records and things like that, I thought that'll amuse me for a while anyway. And, you know, if any work comes along, I'll do it if I feel like it. If I... So, and then uh, 
And then I moved in here and uh, I don't know what happened, but here I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, look, I know among the many listeners who will, will hear this uh, will be a lot of your ex-students and I know they'd want me to say thank you so much for um, for the, the vast knowledge that you've given us over the years as, as acting students of yours and, and to, to let you know that you love very much and um, thank you so much for sharing your... Uh, thank you very much indeed. Today. I've enjoyed it. I suppose what I'd finish up by saying is I guess all that came from the fact that whatever else I was doing, I remained stage-struck all the time. I wanted to know how it worked uh, and how you can do it at its best and uh, so all the research came from that you know what works wasn't that a magnificent conversation you want to hear more what have you subscribed to stages do so and keep up to date with every new guest episode as it is released you can subscribe in apple podcasts and through wooshka And please take the time to rate and review the podcast in the iTunes directory. It helps to grow our audience and reach more stages listening. I'm Peter Ayers, and I'll catch you next time on Stages.